conversation on the other side of campus. My name is Stephanie Seidel Holmston. I'm an associate professor of instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. And I am Katie Dawson. I'm an associate professor in the theater and dance department in the College of Fine Arts. Today, we are joined by associate professor of instruction in the LBJ School of Public Affairs, Dr. Lawrence Rayday. Rayday also serves as the graduate advisor for the LBJ School's Global Policy Studies Program. Before becoming an academic, word on the street is that Rade served as a press officer in the European Parliament, which is the directly elected legislature of the European Union. Rade's research takes advantage of his diverse experiences. He writes about European politics, the European Union, especially its foreign and security policy, which will be quite salient to our discussion today and the role of the European Parliament and parliamentary diplomacy. We're also joined by Michael Mosser. Michael Mosser is a colleague of mine. He's also an associate professor of instruction in both the Department of Government and International Relations and Global Studies. He's also the assistant director of the Center for European Studies and a distinguished scholar with the Robert Strauss Center of International Security and Law. He teaches courses in European international security, European environmental policy, comparative and European politics, international organizations, and foreign policy analysis. So brilliant to join us today. This podcast is about teaching and learning in higher education, but we know that everything that we do as educators and researchers is in context. What is happening locally and globally impacts us. And here we are, my friends, watching the news, as we always do. So many events to watch right now. But we are thinking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Largest ground invasion since World War II. When you read those headlines weeks ago, what did you think? What went through your heads? Well, I guess uh, one of the things that went through my head is how all of us supposed foreign policy experts get so much wrong so often and how it's amazing that all of us really smart people are sitting together, you know, um, or even just sitting together on Zoom saying, wow, we really didn't see that coming and we still get a paycheck. So that's pretty amazing. But yeah, I think it's it's partially just it's, it's surprise, right? I'm originally from Hungary, so there's also a lot of personal connections, you know, Hungary borders Ukraine. So personal things come up here too, like, oh, I hope the war doesn't spread to, to people I know personally. But I actually do, in these instances, also think very quickly about, about teaching, right? Of like, how are we going to talk about this in the classroom? Yeah, you know, I, I was following this on social media before the invasion took place by some folks, and I have a very carefully curated Twitter feed that I try very hard not to read responses to these. So it's people that are, that I take very seriously, analysts. And I mean, I take the opposite tack, at least at the beginning of what Lawrence was saying, because everybody who was surprised wasn't surprised. Like the administration, much of what we saw played out exactly as some foreign policy and, and sort of Biden administration folks had said it would. And it's just people didn't necessarily want to believe. Right. And, and you know, so there's a new word that's entered the foreign policy lexicon, especially in intelligence studies people. They call this pre-bunking. Uh, it's different from debunking. So you're no longer debunking a rumor, you're pre-bunking the rumor. And this is what the Biden administration did for the two weeks leading up. In fact, the months all the way back to December leading up to this invasion was this is what the Russians are going to do. This is what Putin is going to do. Watch this space. Watch for disinformation. Watch for false flag, all of this kind of stuff. And it played out exactly the way that it was sort of intended or at least analyzed. But again, people, we were surprised because we thought, no, this isn't going to happen. And I was following social media and there's a person who was saying, Google Maps, 
is showing a traffic jam in the Ukraine-Belarus border. And Google Maps traffic data is showing vehicles lined up at the border, unable to cross. Now, it wasn't military vehicles. It was vehicles unable to people who were stopped. And they were like, this is the precursor. This is the invasion that's happening in real time. And so I just, I, my response was one word that I'm not going to repeat on a family-friendly podcast uh, on my Twitter feed. But, and I was just, you know, sick. And, and immediately I thought, as Lauren said, how do we teach this? And in international relations and global studies, we spend a lot of time, especially the security track, uh, which is what I teach the security track capstone course. We spend a lot of time. And in all my courses, I spend a fairly, uh, you know, sort of 10 minutes at the beginning and sometimes longer talking about, and I just call it what's new in the world. Well, of course, we're dominated now by what's happening, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the next 40 minutes or so, but how do we balance current events how do we kind of avoid just rehashing current events? How do we get to analysis? How do we get to thoughtful reflection even while these things are taking place in real time? And that, I'm, you know, we're all struggling with that, but this is definitely where we are right now, especially in our particular disciplines. I'm really struck with that the idea of in real time as it's happening. So as I read this just stunning headline in the newspaper, you know, obviously I have to do my own just sort of thinking and processing about that. And then, you know, eventually at some point I turned to my syllabus and there on that day was democracy promotion as foreign policy with a reading about EU expansion, right? So, you know, a little on the nose, helpful, right? So we say, okay, let's go. We're going to talk about an event as it is unfolding, how does that show up for you in the classroom? What does that sound like for you? Okay, so for me, it's often, okay, so what do the scholars have to say about this? What real world events were they using? I mean, the stuff we're coming up with that we're writing articles and that people are writing textbook chapters, it's based on some events somewhere, or at least predictions of things, or you know, sort of some sort of empirical evidence. It may be empirical evidence of revolutions from the 70s, but that's actually really useful. So then we can say, what is it that we're seeing now that does, you know, that has similarities or differences to the kind of stuff we're reading in our academic works. And while it's too soon to make, and I tell them very clearly that it's too soon to make those kind of truly analytical judgments on these sorts of things, but are we seeing patterns emerge? Are we seeing disconfirming patterns? Are we seeing evidence that some of the stuff that we thought were these hard and fast rules starting to break down? Like maybe liberalism is having a really hard time here. The whole trade with Russia, because the longer, you know, the deeper we trade, the fewer the conflicts and Russia appears to be saying, yeah, you know what, we're going to try a different path. There's a huge, huge controversy playing out right now on academics about whether or not we're all realists and is every other theory except for realism completely pointless. Big, big, it's a very kind of, as academics do, lots and lots of people throwing ad hominem attacks, as we shouldn't, but we do. And so that's one of the things I've been trying to do when in my, is here's the reading. How does it match up with reality? Yeah, so I think for me, it's a tiny bit different. I teach at a, at a policy school, right? We're a public affairs school. And so we're specifically training our students, our master's students to, to go out in the world and, and manage these crises. And so already, even before the past two weeks, I always use current, current events and current crises in my prompts and all of my assignments. And it's what we spend a lot of time doing in the, in the classroom as a whole is applying readings that they do to current events. So in that sense, it's not, it's not a big shift. But, you know, what I think is always the, the, the tricky part is to make it pedagogically relevant. And especially when, when it's a crisis that hits, that everybody has read about and everybody cares about, like the, like the current one, the, the trick, I think, is, is not necessarily to get them to talk about it. They want to talk about it, but to talk about it in a way that, that actually reinforces what you're trying to do in that course. And so there, I think what mostly what I think about is how do how do we have a conversation about this where we only tackle those kinds of questions that you can make some sort of informed point about based on the readings you did for that week. And so I'm teaching a course on policymaking in a global age right now. And so, of course, we talked about about uh, Russia's invasion in the in the first 45 minutes of the class. And the tack that I took was, OK, well, you you read these things about what are those ways that different factions of, of, of bureaucracies and different representatives of organizations um, within a government have an effect on policymaking, this kind of bureaucratic politics model? 
if that's the view you take, what what kinds of things would you want to know about about Putin's inner circle right now? And and how would you try to collect intelligence on it? And how, how would you use that to, to analyze what's going on? And then the other thing that I do, which I think is is useful, um, and this gets back to, to Michael's first point about, about these predictions, is to force students to make predictions. This is kind of a perfect, really fast-moving crisis where you do actually expect things, certain things to be different the next week that we meet. A lot of times, most people make bold predictions, and most things stay the same week to week. This is not one of those crises. Like Things are moving very, very quickly. And so, for instance, last week, I, I had all of my students write down three predictions for next week. And then we talked about those predictions. What, what came true? What were those predictions that were really off? What were those where maybe we're not quite sure yet? And those, those I think, really make, make sense. And I think the key is to make them write them down, because, of course, if they don't, they're all, they're all going to say that, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I predicted. And then, you know, just to be transparent, I, I wrote some down, too, and I, I, I showed them what I did. And so I just did a, a repeat of this, and I told them, you know, next week is spring break. Now try to do something more, more long-term, predict something for two weeks from now, and also this week write something down that we're going to look at in the last day of class in May. And so, you know, that, that I think is this kind of natural experiment for, for social scientists, right, to be like, okay, can you, can you think of some predictions that you can make? And then we can talk about whether they're going to come true. What you're describing strikes me as application. It's an application of the material that we're consuming in class and we're applying it to a real life scenario as it unfolds. I love the idea of writing it down so we look at it later. Really smart. I was just going to say it also makes me think quite a bit about those just in time in situ learning experiences. What a gift they are. I mean, complex. Like you're doing some amazing pivots there, Lawrence. You're like taking it in, thinking about how to make it really relevant how to give them. I also like, there's something I really appreciate. This is, this is a, you know, the, the arts person's perspective. So I do a lot of research on like multimodal ways of learning and how important it is to have like a visual as well as a, I, I get into the embodiment too, but you know, so I think just the idea of having that written thing down and then you can look at those written things together. Those things could be mapped if you wanted to like put those things on a whiteboard and do stuff around or move those. So I'm just really appreciating the way you're making thinking visible, which sometimes gets kind of scattered away in dialogue, but you're having those really concrete pieces, which I think they might be able to return to in fundamental ways. if the event is so remarkable, but it does not fit into the class topic. Have you ever tackled a topic just because it was so front and center, but it didn't necessarily plug into what you were doing that day? So I, I think just two quick answers. One, I have. I remember this was mostly the, this was in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president and a lot of our students who were policy students obviously we're up all night with the, you know, following the returns and all that stuff. And my, my point at, at that point in class was, you know, this isn't directly relevant to what we're talking about. So, so I don't want to, you know, talk about it right now, but I had them, at, I think at, at this point, this was a different class and I had them do some sort of assignment where it was about, you know, how do you expect the sort of foreign policy stance of the United States to change in the next few months? But one of the reasons I was able to do that, I think, is because I also have this other role of being the graduate advisor for almost all of the students who are in my class. So the kind of psychological need of these students to talk about a crisis, I could meet that need in other ways in terms of in my office hours or, or you know, just because I was around. And so I didn't need to do that in the classroom. And so I'm not sure how I would have dealt with that had I not had that other relationship with them. So I'm curious how, how Michael dealt with that. Maybe even that instance or another, another example. I have a couple of examples too. So I'll start with a little bit of my pedagogical philosophy, which is very organic. I don't really have any notes that I don't ever have a lesson plan. I have a syllabus, which I'm required to by state law. And I follow it in the sense of I get the topic out to the students, but Dr. Holmston knows this. She sees it on a weekly basis in the fall. But we have a beginning point and we have an end point. And how we get there, it's, it develops organically every time. So, you know, a student 
in a class a semester ago who happens to be in a class this time around is going to get two entire like they could take the same class and get two entirely different lectures. So my example, I also have one from 2016. I was teaching in a study abroad program and in Germany and I was teaching comprehensive notions of European security, one of my UT classes, but I was teaching it to a group of UT study abroad students, but also a much larger group of European students coming from places like Ukraine and Georgia and Turkey. And it was the day after Brexit. And we got into class and many of them said, ah, I have relatives in Britain. Are they now being forced to you know, leave? We had a really kind of, we pivoted very much to what does the impact of Brexit have for European security? And what does it have? As, I, it wasn't necessarily graduate advisor as Lawrence's, but I felt very, I felt an affinity with, to what he was saying because there is, every instructor has a psychological bond with the students in a way that, I mean, we are not licensed counselors and we have to be very careful not to overstep our role and overstate our role, but we still have to, you know, sort of empathize with those students and make sure that they are aware that we care about them and that when these global events impact their lives, and sometimes very personally, impact their lives in a way that are far more direct than they impact ours, that we can help in some ways kind of talk through, you know, sort of, and to help them begin to make sense of things. I try anyway. I certainly fail far more often than I succeed. Thinking about how to recognize those particular positions in the classroom. Michael, you and I were teaching when the hurricane hit the Bahamas, a community that I had lived in that many people, certainly in our classroom, did not have any experience with. And I was differently positioned towards that event because I had been there before. It was on my mind at the forefront in a way that, of course, it might not affect everybody. And I saw it just slightly differently because I had been there before. Lawrence, you were talking about this idea of sort of trauma. How do you, where's space for that in the classroom? I think that's a really difficult balance to strike, and it depends on the instructor. I tend to try and keep that aspect outside of the classroom in the sense that when we're actually in the classroom, and this was particularly true after the after 2016 elections in the U.S., I found that a lot of students really enjoyed me forcing them to think about something else for three hours. I also think, again, because we're, we're teaching master students, so they're, they're somewhat older and more mature, I also want to give them a sense of the policy world where even if you're in a crisis, you still need to do your job. And so treating the classroom kind of like a professional space where you have to do your job, I think it has its, has its own uses. I think that the, the important part with this is that this needs to be combined with a very clear invitation to, to engage them outside of the classroom. And again, I have this, on the one hand, really exhausting job, but also this comes with the benefit that they, they feel comfortable coming to talk to me because I'm already the faculty person that they come to talk to about all sorts of personal problems that, these, that, that they may have. So I tended to, to, not, to not do this kind of engaging, engaging with students for the purpose of, of trying to, to, to manage their, their, their trauma or their sort of mental health within the classroom. I like to sort of keep that dividing line relatively strict, but that might not work for, for others. Yeah, you make me think a lot, Lawrence. I mean, I'm in a program that, you know, has a social justice mission as attached to it. So working through spaces of trauma or what I think my my master students are really excited to call healing centered focused of how are we moving and how are communities, particularly historically and currently marginalized communities, getting to kind of reclaim places out of trauma to a healing centered space. So I find myself always trying to kind of give a space to have some sort of check-in or some sort of space. Again, I'm also in the arts, so we're also, and I'm also doing a lot of stuff around teaching and learning generally. So we're recognizing that when we learn, like it's a whole person thing, but at the same time, you know, also recognizing that we do need to get onto the business of things sometimes too. I am not getting so mired in that. I think even the winter storm was a big place for me last year where folks were just holding a lot after that. And I remember, I remember actually choosing to do a really specific activity that used music and allowed them to do some like visual creative expression, but no words or text that wasn't People could share or do it how they wanted to. They had a lot of choice within it. 
And it was a way I opened the class just to let people kind of process and also for me to sort of look assessment wise, like how are people holding it together? Do I need to really shift what I'm doing today? And then afterwards, I really designed a class that had a lot of like as much as we can, you know, like play in it or humor or kind of joy, because I also just was super aware that that folks needed to find that again. I needed to kind of find that a little bit again, too. So, yeah, I just think it's it is very interesting to kind of both recognize the outside spaces as filtering and shaping, but then also knowing that we, we do need to get through that syllabus and we need to get through those ideas. And, you know, the humanization of teaching and learning, I think, has been very top of mind for me for a lot of years, but particularly these last few. Yeah, one thing here, which seems like a very minor thing, but I have, um, because of our schedule, we have three hour long seminars, so we have breaks. So I, I also think I'm in a very different mode when we go on break, even if everybody stays in the same classroom and we're just sitting there, I, I, I completely change my, my approach to my communication there. Right. And so I I do think there's, and again, this might work for some people better than for others, but I, I, I have that kind of delineation between, you know, we are, I'm doing what you pay me for, which is to teach you about this stuff, but then now we're on break and now I'm like, how are you doing? Uh, and so, so there's also that that question of can you do that? And again, this this has to do with even these these small things like how's the classroom set up? Like how long is it? Do you have these breaks, or is it if it's a 50 minute class you can't do this because they come in and then they leave and you might not get a chance to chat with them. So I think even these these little things over which we have absolutely no control really make a big difference. One thing that I found also is letting them know and letting them know really early and often that you don't have all the answers. Um, that while we are instructors, and yes, we do get paid to instruct and to give our, you know, sort of our expertise. But at the same time, we are not savants. We are not omniscient. And and I am, and I joke about this, but it's, you know, I've been wrong every, everything in 2016 that Lawrence is talking about. I'm wrong about all of it. And then, and, and, you know, that's okay, right? And so we have this kind of, in many ways, kind of shared vulnerabilities that none of us have all the answers. And it's, but that is also to say that we should not then just say, "Oh, I don't have the answers. I don't need to think about it in a in a kind of critical thinking sort of way or in an intellectual way." And I really like what Lawrence is talking about about dividing out the classroom and then the non-classroom settings because you do want. And I just try to get them to engage with these topics intellectually in a way that says, "Here's how we begin." Like we started the conversation, here's how we begin to do the kind of snapshot analysis, knowing full well that it's very likely to be completely wrong. And yet the process of thinking through these issues allows them to process the other kind of issues that they may be holding in reserve, the kind of emotional issues, and allows them to, in some ways, compartmentalize, but in a kind of healthy way. Obviously, there's a dangerous way to do that, but compartmentalizing in the way that gives them the ability to then make it through uh, the task that they have at hand whether that be an assignment for that day or a midterm coming up or something along those lines, gives them that cover. And being and having that conversation with them at the beginning is like, look, we're all in this and we're all in it together. Does, I think at least I see this with my undergrads. I also teach three-hour seminars. Our IRG students are three-hour seminars. And I like your point about the break and, you know, leaving the classroom. I don't know if you do it that way at the LBJ school, but I often walk out of the actual physical space of the classroom and chat with some folks in the hallways and some other things. Sometimes as the weather gets nice, we go outside and we stare at the sky and we say, okay, take a deep breath and let's let's just absorb for a second before we get back in. I call them comfort breaks for lots of different reasons. Go out, stare at the sky, walk around the building, come back and let's reset. You make me think both of you a lot about how we are working with our, you know, our local communities. And I wonder, I feel like I I get a little gift of having these two experts on here that know quite a bit more about the region than I do. I've been running projects for a while with the U.S. Embassy in Bosnia, Herzegovina and Poland. We work on critical and creative thinking and perspective taking with K-12 and university educators. I'm using the arts as sort of a thing to, to get there. So, And we are running a project right now, about a five-month project with folks in Poland and Bosnia-Herzegovina. 
You know, the folks who we are partnering with, the teachers there, we're doing a bunch of virtual learning community spaces and I have grad students working with me on it. Um, So this is outside the class, but other ways that I'm teaching through kind of practice-based research projects, which they get paid to do with me. You know, our folks in Bosnia right now, like our numbers dropped pretty dramatically. And partly it has to do, and we were talking with them about the complexity of how they're reacting. So kind of this trauma-informed care that we're talking about with our students here at UT, really, I mean, and Lawrence, you just hit my heart on that when you did in your own intro and talking about family and friends who are close by. So the ways that we're trying to kind of business as usual run this project with these presenters and workshops and things with these folks in the region who are deeply impacted by this event that's happening right now and trying to understand, you know, how much I can help my students here be ready to help support folks there, trying to figure out what they need and they all need probably different things too. Just wondering how when you are partnering with folks in other spaces and having your students kind of navigate the complexity of those regions with maybe a little less knowledge of what is actually underneath. You know, my friends there are just talking about PTSD in Bosnia, like just talking about war is hard for them, brings up a lot for them. So I don't know just what advice you would have about kind of doing partnering projects with places across regions with a lot of complexity. I mean, I think one of the things is to realize that there are certain times when maybe we shouldn't try to be teaching, you know? And to, to a certain extent, we, we have this urge to say, oh, well, we are, we are educators. We want to sort of see our students and support them, offer them, them this kind of, you know, as you said, this, this sort of healing space. And sometimes I just also think we should be open with ourselves and, and be okay with the fact that we, we can't do it. For instance, like with the winter storm that you mentioned, I just ended up canceling class. I'm like, I can't help you. Like, I'm not a, you know, neither in terms of physically, right? Like, if you're cold, I can't heat you up, right? But, but more importantly, I, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't know what those needs are, right? I don't know what it's like to live in a war zone, and I don't think that, you know, me trying to turn a classroom experience into something that is useful to you in that regard is gonna go well. So I think we also just need to, to, to realize that there are times when people shouldn't be in a classroom if they have more important things to do, like life happens. And that's, I think, something that oftentimes we're, we're, we're sort of stuck in our little world of like, oh, well, but they're going to miss this one like part of the syllabus. Well, yes, they'll miss that part of the syllabus. They'll live. So just being aware that sometimes we're not important and sometimes we can't help. And at that point, maybe the best thing to do is get out of the way and let them do what does help. And I'm not sure what that is, by the way, right? But I'm sure it's not me trying to counsel them through something that I is really not my forte. So I think just knowing our limits is is, is also important, and you know, just trusting our gut instinct when we're like, maybe we're just, maybe we should just be quiet and just stay home. Humility, right? It, we it, you know, humility rather than hubris. We often get this notion that well, because we can. Because we can say something about most everything, we should say something about most everything. And that rings false. Uh, students pick up on this in a way. And hey, Lawrence, I mean, yeah, you, you put your finger right on it, right? And you, we can speak intellectually about a lot of different things. And usually we can do it in a way that unless you're paying really close attention, you're not going to notice that we don't have a clue what we're talking about. But we've done really, we've done a really great job at learning how to say a lot of, you know, throw a lot of words at, a, at an issue and make it sound like, wow, they've really thought this through. And really, you're just trying to get a point across in the most obfuscatory way possible. And that doesn't help anybody at all. So right, canceling class is a totally a fine idea. Having the humility to know this isn't something that we can meaningfully contribute to. And it may be, in fact, make it worse. At the same time, I also like, because I, I have had students, uh, and it's funny, Katie, you talk about Bosnia. I had a student uh, a semester ago in my European security class from the region. And you have to be really cautious, and all three, all of us here know this, and I don't want, you know, and everybody listening knows this as well, but you never, ever want to say to, you know, sort of represent you, your category error, right? You know, this person, you have to be, you're the representative of this region or this country or this group. 
that's a disaster and it's been wrong in so many ways. But you can figure out a way to say your lived experience is different from every other person's lived experience in this classroom. And if you feel comfortable sharing in a way that allows us to move the discussion forward and allows students in this room or on Zoom or wherever to understand the situation, not just from what they've read, but from what you've gone through. And if you can do that constructively, and I admit that's not easy and it is a challenge and it's a tightrope act. If you can do it in a way that, and again, it has to be uh, in a space where everybody is comfortable having that conversation, but it can be really constructive. And that's one of the great things about global classrooms. It's one of the great things about bringing in, working with international partners is that those shared experiences make the collective experience much better. And I think one, one thing to, to note here, especially in, in this field of global policy, is that there's always a crisis. And we... I think also need to be very cognizant of which crises we privilege, right? 100,000 people have died in Yemen in the past eight years. And I don't think we've had a conversation about, well, how are you talking about the war in Yemen in your classroom? And different students are going to be affected differently by these crises, right? I have a student who's from Saudi Arabia. I'm sure she cares much more about the, the, the war in Yemen than she does about the, the, the war in Ukraine, right? And there might be some students who care much more about the police killing George Floyd than they do about the current Ukraine crisis. So we also need to be aware that when we talk about these crises, we we also need to be aware that we're elevating certain things as things that people should and, and by things that students should be upset about or should care about. Right. And we need to also think about what are those crises that we're not talking about. And so. That's, again, one of the reasons I don't I I try to always give a pedagogical reason for why we're going to talk about a crisis is because I think it's relevant to what we're trying to do in the classroom, because I I think that's one way to at least somewhat avoid this problem of, well, we're just talking about this because you care about it or because uh, a certain population cares about it. So you are just really nailing something Lauren said. I think Stephanie and I were even talking a little bit about before we came to the session today about all of these other events, like the layering effect of so many things happening at one time, you know, and how do you both make connections or reach outs across. So um, because obviously our, our folks and you both are kind of really leaning into the fact that we have really diverse students who all have unique experiences and they also are not a monolith for their their experience or representation around their identity either, like complex humans with complex lives and experiences. But, you know, it just makes me think about, you know, what are both of your experiences or ideas around when we are in a moment where some folks in the room might want to lay into something else, like we have really complicated things happening around trans kids in Texas right now. We have really complicated things about women struggling to work and attend university in Afghanistan. And yes, we have this major invasion happening in Ukraine. So that kind of complexity of and layering of things where we don't get so mired down in all of that, that we don't actually move forward in the things we're trying to do too. But do you all have ideas or, or experiences where you've kind of mitigated or worked across multiple things? Yeah, you know, the IRG Capstones, this is the three-hour seminar that I was talking about earlier, and uh, they're thematic the first couple weeks before they go and they do their own research. And, you know, sort of the security track Capstone has has themes that that go from the sort of traditional security kind of stuff, what we're seeing now in Ukraine, to identity-based security and human security and responsibility to protect and what is a vulnerable population and all that sort of stuff. So that's built in in some ways to the syllabus. But one of the things that I try to do in the discussions, if we're building those, is exactly what, and the three points that you brought up, and of course we have, we're still living in a pandemic, which has got everybody, you know, even though we seem to have forgotten that we're living in a pandemic, it is still very, very front and center to a lot of folks. And yet just another layer of uh, stress that these four students are under. But those things that you were just talking about, the anti-trans legislation in Texas, for example, and the war and the pandemic all came up last, our last meeting before the students went off to research weeks. 
and I purposely said, you know, let's not talk about the the elephant in the room, bright shiny object that is the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion. Let's talk about some of these other issues that have direct relevance to folks in this city. Oftentimes we'll talk about things like how do we think about how our education is impacting folks in East Austin, for example? How do we talk about ways in which marginalized communities, and it's exactly what Lawrence talked about, who don't have the ability to privilege issues because they are not in a position where their voices are heard. So how do we bring, and the students, this is the greatest thing about the students and being at a university like ours, is the students bring this up. We're not the ones who are bringing these sorts of things up. And allowing them in many ways to raise these issues and then get, and just sitting back and listening and having the students have that conversation, not necessarily an undirected conversation, you're guiding and shaping, but having them interact with each other and say, you know, I hadn't really thought about that in that way. Please tell me more about why you consider this issue to be as important as you do. That's ideal. It doesn't always happen, but we see that play out where I say, you know, let's set the big issue that's on, that's dominating the news aside and let's talk about some of the other things that are just as relevant and yet not appreciated by the news media. Yeah, I, mean, I think to a certain extent, we will never be able to tackle all of the big important issues in, in the period of, of class. So I think the, the main thing for me has been to always show willingness to talk to students about these issues as a person and then to give very good and clear reasons for why we're going to bracket it in the classroom setting, right? So if somebody says, okay, let's talk about this particular global crisis, I would either say, you know what, we're going to talk about that in two weeks because it's going to be relevant to that topic. So when we get there, please raise it again and we'll talk about it there. Or I'm going to say, listen, I also have feelings about and, and thoughts about this particular, you know, local or state policy, but this isn't the place to talk about it. Let's chat afterwards. So I think just being, I know this is kind of a cop-out, but but just being very clear about communicating what you as the curator of the classroom think is appropriate to that setting and what you think is, is not appropriate and making it clear that that is not a value judgment on the subject itself. It's a value judgment about whether that subject is going to enlighten others about the sort of purpose at hand, what that is. So that's kind of, I think, what, what matters. And it's little things like at the beginning of each class, I just tell them, here are the things we're going to talk about today. Here's the sort of three, four things we're going to cover, right? So it's even just basic communication about what they should expect from the classroom that I yeah. think can, can go quite far. You know, this insight of being the curator, I like that idea. And you step in first as sort of a person. And I think of that curating and the foil to me of that story is maybe when a student brings in misinformation, right? I mean, you know, Michael was talking earlier. We know that we're getting a lot of really helpful information from social media and TikTok is full of distorted stories. How do you handle misinformation when it comes in through the students? Okay, they've got so many avenues for information that are bombarding them. They're completely overwhelmed. It's noise. And somebody in the Clement Center panel last Wednesday talked about separating the signal from the noise. And I think that's a really useful metaphor. And all you know, one of the things is, you know, it's a sort of classic kind of thing, like vet your sources uh, and understand that just because something gets 10,000 views in an hour doesn't necessarily make it accurate and impossibly it could make it even less accurate. In fact, especially with the crisis uh, and with the war right now in Ukraine, some of the news that is being celebrated as evidence of Ukrainian success is propaganda put out by the Ukrainians in a way that is working, right? I mean, you know, and that's all part of conflict. It's been this way as long as people have been talking to each other in this in a conflict space. So how do we keep students from falling into the trap of believing disinformation and, repli and, and reinforcing that disinformation and spreading it in a way that is really very dangerous. That I wish I had like an easy five second answer and said, do this and everything is going to be fine. We are very fortunate to have on campus a really great center, the Global Disinformation Lab. Great students working there run by a friend of mine who is then they are working overtime. I mean, those poor folks trying to get kind of scholarly perspectives, but also some really practical advice on what to look for, tips and tricks, basically, to identify disinformation and to kind of prepare. 
But also, you just don't want to give students a mouthpiece for spouting everything. I mean, this would go for not just disinformation, but for a student who's bringing a view that is not, and Lawrence has brought this up multiple times, it's not relevant either to the topic at hand or really just not scholarly relevant in any way. And it's just sort of like a a flat out opinion that has no basis in reality. That doesn't belong in a classroom, even if it is a what's new in the world kind of stuff. That You have to be really careful to shut that down. And there we, I think there we are, we go beyond curators and we go into our classic instructor mode where, you know, that's not the conversation we're going to be having. It's not appropriate here in the classroom and it's really not appropriate at all. And there I do sort of lean on the, I am the instructor of record for this class and this is the kind of conversation we're going to have. You don't do that very often and you show, hopefully the students don't fall into that very often. But when it does, you have to be aware that early intervention is necessary. And there's two things. So it's actually relatively rare that a student makes a point that's clearly disinformation that we as faculty members know exactly, oh, yeah, that's disinformation. The problem is they're going to talk about something that we have, you know, it's, it's, it's the level of granularity that we don't have. So I think the best way to, to minimize that is, again, to not have questions such as what's going on in Ukraine. That, that, that's, that's what prompts these kinds of things. And so, you know, when I talk to my students about about this particular current event, I have very specific questions. So I, I kind of put them in, I, I have this general sense that what, what, what helps is to give them kind of scenarios, right? So I'm like, if you are, you know, sitting at the National Security Council and you're responsible for analyzing what's going on in Russia, like what kinds of pieces of, of information would you want today that would help you? And then that gets us to talk about why. Okay, why is that? But by asking kind of more pointed questions, and I think that the bigger the crisis, the more you need to focus the students right on, let's tackle this one little part, because then seven of you can say something and at least they'll intersect somehow, right? Rather than if you if you have a broad discussion. So I think the way to avoid even even this, this trap of having a lot of disinformation come out is, is to really be in control of the purpose and the direction of the conversation, kind of like what Mike was saying. Because then you then you're you're not in control of the content of it, but but you 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 are establishing yourself as as the instructor right? who can say whether or not this is true or not. It's not it's it's sort of beyond the bounds of what we're talking about. I sometimes I do often because we have different styles. I can hear that very clearly. But one of the things that I do is, you know, I do say what's happening. But then I also say what's how do you know? Right. And that 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 epistemological question is something that I try very hard to get them to think. And they were like, well, I heard this on or I heard, you know, then we have the discussion about why what's the relevance of that or the value, even better word, I suppose, for that particular source. And I find those discussions actually to be far more important than the fact based or than, as it turns out, maybe not factually based discussions. But the 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 kind of the so what what can we learn from this? And what does it mean that there is this information that turns out to be factually inaccurate being so so easy to absorb? What's the what's the analytical point we can make from that? But yeah, uh, I like that point that Lawrence has made as well. Michael, you make me think a lot about the magic of the question, what makes you say that? I don't always get those gift moments, but sometimes those moments when we're having a discussion and then you can almost get the next ring out and say, so what sort of discussions were you just hearing? What was shaping those different kinds of viewpoints? Why might we have had a different sort of viewpoint? Or again, I love visual representation. So I might put a question out there, put it on a continuum on the board and give them all post-its and say, pop it where you want to pop it, you know, get those notes up there. This is, you can tell I'm in like theater and dance because we don't have like clickers and things. We just, you know, post-its and a whiteboard. Anyway, so even getting that visual data up there, you can of course do this with a clicker or something else fancier. Um, But just that notion of being able to say, so what is that data even telling us about this opinion about this topic? Why might this group of people have that opinion in the first place? So like, what's the layering of like where our opinions even are coming to or coming towards, which I think is always really interesting when they start to think about like where are their own biases or proclivities and how is that shaping their views on a particular topic, which sometimes they don't quite get to if I don't ask. And then, you know, and then we might get to like, what are the opinions and where they come from very particular? Why did you vote a certain way? But I often, I just, you, you, you both make me think so much about the importance of like that bigger so what as 
being the sweet spot. Like we know we can find information anywhere on the internet. So like what is the understanding what to do with it or what it means or why or where it comes from feels like that's that next layer that we're trying to get to right now in our teaching and learning. So I have a quick confession to make. I go to bed looking at the newspaper and I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is look at the newspaper. How do you take care of yourself while you're tracking an event like this? I never read the newspaper right before bed and I never read the newspaper right when I get up. <laughs> and I tell all my students to also not do that. So I honestly think that's one of the, one of the, the, the habits, especially in crisis mode or when, when stuff is going on, you know, that, that's, you know, we're all, parts of the world are always in crisis mode. But when there are certain crises that I professionally am more interested in, I make a point of trying to check the news once at most twice a day for like a specific period of time. Because what I found is that I would lose three to four hours on nitty gritty details that even three days down the line don't matter at all. And it's a huge waste of time and a huge psych has a huge psychological cost. So um, I, I tell this to my students too. I, I always read fiction right before bed. And so so that gets my mind off of uh, off of the crises that are that are, are in this world. And and yeah, I don't I don't check the news until I, I, I get I get to work at the earliest or, you know, what, uh, maybe listen to, to, to news in the car or something. So that I think is actually one of my main coping mechanisms is just to make sure that that I don't follow the, the, the very nitty gritty. And I will say that this is one of the few times where I've been breaking that rule a little bit because I feel like things are happening in the span of hours that are making a big difference. So I went to this to this panel that, that Michael moderated yesterday and I had like these wonderful points prepared and Mike's like, yeah, two hours ago that that thing already changed. I was like, oh, but that that's very rare that that happens. And when it does happen, it's going to be Mike Mosser who's going to point it out because he also reads the news religiously. So most of the time, the world doesn't change in 12 hours. And so so that's been my 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 coping mechanism. I popped out for lecture and then I turned right around in the hallway, ran back into my office, checked the newspaper real quick before going into the classroom because I was afraid of exactly what you were talking about. Something was going to happen, you know, right in that moment. But you're exactly right. I should put the newspaper down and I got to pick up that good sci-fi book I'm reading uh, and get that in my head so that I can sleep a little bit better. How about you, Michael? I was uh, raised by parents who used to use phrases like, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. In other words, don't think, don't overinflate your own importance. You're not that important in the grand scheme of 7 billion people on the planet. And it's really, talk about humility. This is, it gives me a sense that while I can do what I can do, which is educate and inform and, you know, sort of bring students along. And I joke about this, but it's only half joking. I don't have any of the answers. And if I had any of them, I would be in Oslo getting the Nobel Peace Prize because nobody else has the answers either, right? But yeah, I check the news on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, let alone a, you know, sometimes a second-by-second -second basis. I prefer to do the analysis. I don't want somebody else to do the analysis for me. So I like reading raw news sources and that kind of stuff and trying to make sense of it. But I also am fully aware, and maybe this is just the way my head is balanced, but I'm aware that my analysis is just one of thousands of people doing analysis and it doesn't have any more bearing than anybody else's. And so I sleep okay at night with that. But it's a struggle, no question about it, especially when things are affecting so many people in so many ways and in ways that we haven't seen before. You know, a lot of stuff is like, this is just another another example of X, whereas this is like off the charts and we like to think that we are we don't want to be living through history, but we are, and we're all being swept along by that. It strangely reminds me, it is, hasn't happened before, and I, I, I agree with Mike that this is a different moment. So I started my graduate school in foreign policy at Georgetown University, and my second week of school was 9-11. And so I remember being in that situation where you know, we were in the classroom and we had these conversations of like, okay, well, do we throw the rest of the syllabus out the window or not? Like, what do you think? Is this a major change? Is it not? And I still have some of my response essays from, from that time, right, that I wrote. And I've been talking to my students about this because I think one of the things that's, that's important is to share with the students that they're not the only ones who are uncertain in these times and, and they're not the only ones who are trying to make sense of it. And that's one of the reasons that I... You know, when I, when I ask my students, for instance, to make these predictions, I always do the same thing so that they can see that I'm not 
I don't have some sort of privileged knowledge, right? I'm a little bit more experienced than they, but but I may get stuff just as wrong as they do. And that I think is something that, especially in this moment, I've, I've thought back to that a lot of when I was in grad school and had this, but that's a weird coincidence, right? That, it's, that I've had that experience. But I, I think back to that a lot. And maybe that's one of the reasons that I that I separate the classroom out is I I do remember having 9/11 fatigue where we just that's all we talked about and then of course that's all we talked about for the next 10 years but I didn't know that back then but I remember just going into a classroom like you know what like this is this is French history this is great like I I want to learn more about it. like just for for two three hours I don't want to talk about global terrorism and and that's why and again this is a very personal thing like so. In my head, I assume that's what my students today might also want, is to have a space where they can, you know, turn their, their gears in their heads about something else, right, rather than news. But again, that, that sort of stems from, and all of us are, are building on our, off of our own personal experiences for, for when we were students, right? This is one of the weird tragedies that, of course, nobody tells our students is that most of us are not trained to teach very much. We get PhDs and then people are like, oh, now you can go into the classroom and you go in, you're like, now what? Well, let me, let me remember what I hated and what I liked when I was a grad or when I was a student. And we sort of make it up as we go along and we try to get some training here and there as much as we can. And so I think that's natural that we think back to our, our previous instances and, and think of what yeah, we would have enjoyed yeah. or, or not enjoyed then. Yeah, wow. We've had this conversation that really, you know, Lawrence, your comments, it's just bringing that person back. Of course, it's our own experiences that shape what we do in the classroom, our own experiences with events like this. And it just strikes me that I'm really hearing both sort of Lawrence, your sense of a curator, Michael's sense of an instructor, and then ultimately we're taking care of ourselves, right? You're reading fiction at the end of the day. Michael, you embed your words with so much humility that it invites students to consider the complexities because we admit we're not experts, right? What a what an important way in this this moment to me of this particular event. It has for sure strategic considerations and wonky military strategies. And it's about wives and their kids trying to cross a border and men maybe having to stay back and the movement of people in places where maybe we've been before. We certainly now are working closely with people who are in that region. And just to bring back our own place in all of that, I think, has been really important in this conversation. So thanks for taking the time and just reminding us that we're humans first, right? We want to be here for the long haul. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you both. Thanks, you guys. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Thank you.